If I have not had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Alan Pittman. I am uh, the senior pastor here as well as one of the elders, and we are absolutely thrilled that you're worshiping with us today. And so if I have not yet had a chance to meet you and you're in this room, I'd encourage you to stick around after the service and say howdy to me uh, outside in the foyer area. If you are worshiping with us online and this is your first time, welcome as well. We would love to have a record of your visit with us so that we can reach out to you and give you more information about the church and answer any questions you may have. Um, I am glad to be back in service today. We worshiped with you online last Sunday uh, because of this crazy thing called COVID. I had an exposure. Uh, thankfully, only one of our family members uh, tested positive and she got healthy quickly and the rest of us were negative. So I am back today. Uh, grateful for David preaching uh, for me last Sunday. He found out Thursday afternoon that he would be preaching and he did a great job. So David, thank you so much for preaching for me last week. Uh, he preached from Psalms, and this morning I'll be preaching from Psalms, uh, and that's just uh, because I felt led to share this psalm with you. I'll be preaching what I would have preached last Sunday, and then next Sunday we're going to start uh, basically in a year-long journey through the book of Acts. Over the last couple of years, we've done some things to kind of give us a foundation, and so uh, two years ago we walked through uh, the scripture from Genesis to Revelation, and we preached through that. Uh, kind of getting the grand narrative of Scripture. And then last year, we walked through the New Testament together and looked a little closer at the New Testament. But I'm excited that beginning next Sunday, we're going to be able to dive into one book of the Bible. And with a few exceptions, like at Easter or some other special time of the year, we will be walking literally verse by verse from Acts chapter 1, verse 1 through Acts 28. And I don't remember the last verse of chapter 28, but we'll be walking through the entirety of the scripture there in the book of Acts to see what God's word is to the church, uh, both then and now. And I'm excited to be able to dive in with you on that. Uh, as you probably were aware of, last Sunday we were going to have a thing called family meeting, uh, but because of scheduling conflicts, because of COVID and all of those things, uh, we have decided to present the material a little bit differently. We're not going to have a standalone family meeting as of right now. Uh, rather, um, we'll be kind of sharing some of that information as we walk through the study of the book of Acts, as well as, you may have seen in the worship guide, we're having a Super Bowl party on February the 13th. We're hoping uh, the right team gets there. We're not sure who's going to be there, uh, but we hope that you'll come whether you watch football or not because we'll be able to hang out with our church family, have a great time, eat some food that the church is providing, and, and then at halftime we'll gather in here and be able to have a little bit of a worship service and cover some of the things that we would have covered at the family meeting, and then in the second half we'll watch the rest of the game, all of that. So make plans to be a part of that. That's Sunday, February the 13th. All right. That's kind of uh, the, the preliminary stuff that I wanted to share with you as we uh, jumped into the middle of uh, the sermon today. I wanted to begin by saying hello to a lot of people online. I, I know that many of you reached out to me this week and said, hey, Alan, with the numbers increasing, we're going to kind of worship from home for a couple of weeks. And I know there's others of you that wanted to be here today, but maybe you're still quarantined or maybe some of you have COVID and, and yet you're worshiping with us online and we're thankful that we have this technology available. I would encourage all of us, whether you're in the room or not, if there's a Sunday that you cannot be here and worship in the building with us, I'd encourage you, don't, don't say, I'll catch it whenever. Like, I'll, I'll watch the service at 3 or, or whatever, because that kind of turns us into spectators. And, like, we're just kind of watching the service after the fact. If you're at home and you can't worship at 10 o'clock, then worship at 10 o'clock. If you can't worship in the building, worship at 10 o'clock at the house. That's what my family and I did last week. And that way we can continue to worship as a church family. So, all right, if you've got a Bible, I would encourage you to grab it and turn to Psalm 34. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a Bible near you in a chair underneath you or around you. And if you don't have a Bible or you need a Bible, feel free to take that home with you today. And that'll be our gift to you because we want everybody to have God's word to be able to, to read it. I specifically chose Psalm 34 because recently... I've been hearing these kinds of things along the way, but especially over the last couple of months, recently I've been hearing things like this. I've heard people say, I'm just hurting. I'm just worn out. Like, I just don't know if I can keep going on. And I'm not talking about somebody with suicidal thoughts, but just literally people that can't figure out what is the right step, where do we go, what's next, what's around the corner. I am just worn out out and honestly as your pastor 
I'm experiencing some of those same feelings at times. And so as I have thought through it, I've gone to God's word, specifically Psalm 34 has really spoken to me. I know that the last two years have been crazy in our lives. We are full of pain and fatigue and all of it is real and it can seem insurmountable. I know that I was talking to someone this week who uh, has a wife that works in the healthcare profession and they were sharing that at a particular hospital that on uh, Wednesday, 40% of their staff called in sick and uh, unable to be there. I can't imagine what it's like to be working in a medical profession right now and the stress and the anxiety that's there. And then I look at some of you that are in the education field and your teachers and administrators and you're like, I don't even know how to find a sub and cover my classes and not sure how to keep everyone safe or I, I just, parent, uh, teachers are worn out. I think of some of you that are first responders and, and your workforce is reduced at times and you've got to cover the city just like you always do and, and you're worn out. I think about all of the mamas out there that are trying to care for their kids and get them to the activities and deal with the cancellations and the, and the disappointments and this and that. I, I know that life has been hard. College students, those of you that finish your high school career and you didn't have the prom because COVID jacked it up. Others of you that came into college and you wanted to start with all the traditions and the normal stuff and it's different. I get it. Life has been hard. And then here's the deal. On top of all of the craziness that these last two years have had because of, uh, of COVID related stuff, then there's just life in general that happens every year. So I don't know what season of life you're in right now. I don't know whether you are full of joy and anticipation and excited, or if you're just plumb worn out. But wherever you find yourself, the truth that we will be reminded of in Psalm 34 is the thing that will push us forward in life. I realized that over the last couple of years, there's a sense of uncertainty. Like, what's going to be canceled next? Or what is going to be the plans? Or uh, we're going to have to change it 14 times. I mean, just last week, we had to alter the plans because I had been exposed to COVID. There's uncertainty. So much is changing. And maybe you're asking, well, what is just temporary right now? And what is maybe changed permanently? There's others hurts. Other hurts that are out there. Hurts because of loss. Perhaps you've had a loved one die recently. It doesn't have to have anything to do with COVID, or maybe it does, but someone in your life has passed away and there's a, a loss there. There's others of you that have experienced loss of relationships and friendships. I know that we as a church family have experienced the loss of some church members, some that graduated and so they left and they're no longer in College Station and we didn't even realize they maybe graduated because COVID kind of messed up our equilibrium and they've, they've left and moved to a different city. There's others of our, of our church family that, that got a job and moved cities. There's others of our church family that have decided to worship in, in another, uh, at another church and so all of these are going on that cause uncertainty, pain, and fatigue. And the reason I love the book of Psalms is because the psalmist, whether it be David or one of the other psalmists, they are always authentic, transparent, and they lay it out on the table. And at the same time, they're reminded of how great and glorious and amazing and sovereign and above it all God is. Guys, we have got to continue to trust that God loves us and he is at work in our lives individually and he is at work in the life of our church body and God is doing great things because he is great. So let's worship him for who he is. Let's magnify him for who he is. Let's push through whatever obstacles we may face because he is great and glorious to be praised. So I encourage you, if you don't already have out your worship guide, turn to the back side. There will be a place where you can take notes as we move along through this text. I'm going to read Psalm 34. 
I'd encourage you to go ahead and open your Bible. If you've got a hard copy of your Bible, which I prefer instead of electronic because I'm less distracted, it's right smack dab in the middle of the Bible, basically. Psalm 34. I'm going to read the entire text. You're going to see here that there are 22 verses. This psalm is actually in the Hebrew, an acrostic. The first letter of each verse is one of the Hebrew letters with one exception. The sixth letter is not here. And anyway, that's kind of intriguing. But let's read the text together. Um, David says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Then he gives a word of testimony of his own life. He says, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and he saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and lives many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is an amazing text. An amazing text because it points us back to who God is and how we can trust him in the midst of everything that we are facing. I think one of the biggest problems in life is that we as humans have a tendency to look at the things that have us concerned or to look at the things that have us anxious or to look at the things that have us fearful instead of looking to God. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. No, 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 that's everybody else. Everybody else is fearful. Everybody else is anxious. I've got it all together. No, the reality is 100% of us at different times and in different ways and in different situations find ourselves fearful if we're not careful but if we will turn our eyes back to the one true God if we will worship the Lord for who he is and get our eyes on him then that will help us to deal with the fears or the anxiety or the things that may be bothering us if you don't mind look at the back of your worship guide you're going to see that I have six notes on here and the reason I do is because in the ESV uh, I think they do a good job of kind of laying out six stanzas if you will or section of verses and each of those sections kind of have a different theme and we'll be looking at those together so you may want to jot down beside the first note which says live a life of praise to God this is verses one through three So verses 1 through 3 is kind of the first stanza of this whole psalm. And what David is saying to us is he's setting the precedent that the way we should live our life is to live our life in a way that is a life lived in worship to God or to praise him. I want you to look down at verse 1. He says that he's going to bless the Lord. What, what does it mean to bless the Lord? The, the Hebrew word for bless here actually literally means to kneel, like to get on your knee, to kneel before someone or something. And so the idea is, yes, to worship God, but to do it in an act of humility to acknowledge that he is great and I am not. 
And so as we begin this psalm, I would ask you to consider, when is the last time that you knelt before the Lord? When I say, when is the last time you knelt before the Lord, I'm talking both physically, perhaps, and most definitely figuratively. I know that some of you have had knee surgeries recently. I know some of you have had things done, and you just could not physically get on your knees to to kneel before the Lord. But 100% of us can kneel and should kneel figuratively before the Lord. And so to live a life of worship or to praise the Lord in all circumstances begins with an attitude or a posture of kneeling before the Lord. Then I want us to see three verbs in these first three verses that are similar and and look at the meanings of them you'll see that he says that he's going to boast in the lord you're going to see that he talks about magnifying the lord in verse three and then he talks about exalting the lord in verse three as well i was uh, looking at the the hebrew words behind each of these and the word um uh the word boast is actually a very similar word as the word for praise. So like when you hear the word hallelujah, the hallel part is, is praise or worship. And the word for boast is, is, is almost identical to that same word. And so the idea of boasting before the Lord is to worship or to lift him up or to, to brag on him instead of ourselves. The word magnify in the Hebrew, literally means to acknowledge or to make something or to see something become great. It, to magnify God says that he is great and not myself. The word exalt means to lift up. And so you can see between boast and magnify and, and, and exalt that we are to praise, lift up, exalt, lift, and bless, praise, worship, identify that he is God that he is sovereign. I think all too often, we as humans are tempted to boast in ourselves. I think all too often that we as humans tend to make ourselves great to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. I don't know whether you have a cat at your house or not, but we have a cat at our house. And we have two puppy dogs at our house as well, and they're not so little, but they love to play, especially our uh, old English bulldog. He really loves to play. And when he sees the cat come through the house, he really wants to play with the cat. And the cat really doesn't want to play with him. So what does a cat do? There's two options that a cat will do whenever he is trying to get away from uh, something attacking him. He's either going to lay still and think that the thing is ignoring him or not seeing him, right? Right? That's not what our cat does. What is the other thing the cat will do? It'll, it'll puff, like, right? Like the hair explodes out and the back goes up and he's trying to make himself look bigger than he really is because he knows <laughs> he needs to try to fool that dog, right? All too often, that's right. All too often in our lives, we try to magnify ourselves. We try to make ourselves look bigger whenever we feel intimidated or whenever we feel like something's coming our way. Let's stop magnifying ourselves and let's magnify the Lord. Because when we make him great, then we see where our hope comes from. So when I think about this word, these words, boast, magnify, exalt, I think about our vision. Uh, as a church, we want to be a place where we uh, are, where we... Where we, I can't, I've got my, my, my grammar wrong. Let me just say the phrase instead of trying to put it in a sentence. Be a disciple, make disciples, be the church to the glory of God. So everything that we do in our lives as individuals and as a church should be to His glory, to boast, magnify, and exalt Him. I want us to look at one more word here in this section. Verse 2 begins by saying, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. The word soul here. The word soul is the Hebrew word nephesh. And the Hebrew word nephesh means more than what the Greek thought of soul is. Often when you read this, you probably think, oh, soul, yeah, my soul, my inner, like, spiritual being should worship the Lord. And we, we've got a, a mind, we've got a body, and we've got a soul. We kind of think in the Greek mindset. That's not what the Hebrew mindset was at all. 
The word soul or nephesh means our entire being, everything within us, our physical being, our emotional being, our spiritual being, our relational being, every single ounce of who we are is our nephesh, and everything that's within us should be praising the Lord. So what does that mean? If you and I are going to use our whole nephesh, our whole soul to bless the Lord and worship him, what does that mean? It means on Sunday mornings that maybe not only should we sit with reverence, quiet, but we should also maybe at times boast in the Lord with, with singing loudly. Like that's all I know to do is sing loudly. Maybe we should be bold and excited in our worship. Maybe at times we need to raise our hand in worship to the Lord. Maybe at times we need to kneel on the floor while the singing is happening. Maybe there's times during the singing we need to come to the altar and pray to the Lord. Maybe we need to offer everything we have when we come to worship. Maybe you need to shout amen and hallelujah occasionally. Maybe you need to, thank you, maybe you need to feel the, the privilege to say, preach it, preacher, something. Let's worship the Lord with all that we have. Now, I know that all of us have different personalities. I know what you're thinking. Dude, I am not going to raise my hands. I'm not telling anyone that they have to raise their hands. I'm just giving you permission to worship the Lord with everything you have when we gather. But here's the deal. Worshiping the Lord with our nephesh does not just happen from 10 o'clock until 11.15 on Sunday mornings. To worship the Lord with our entire being means that wherever we go, whatever we do, whatever the setting, that we are seeking to magnify and glorify the Lord with our words, our thoughts, our actions, and our attitudes. So whether you're online, or whether you're at the table with your family, or whether you're in the classroom, or whether you're at the Aggie football game, or whether you're in the quiet of your own house, or whether you're in your neighborhood, or whether you're at work, that everything you do is lived in a way that would glorify God and not yourself. So guys, I think it's time for us to say the biggest way that we're going to push past all the chaos and craziness of these last two years is to truly allow our soul, our nephesh, everything within us to praise and glorify the Lord. We've been too quick, and when I say we, I'm not just talking about living hope, I'm talking about we as people. We've been too quick to be consumed by the stuff around us when we should be consumed by the God that lives within us. Worship the Lord with all of yourself at all times. And when I say all times, I mean continuously. All right, let's keep going. We've got to keep going. Second stanza. The second note says, he is the one who delivers us. You may want to put out beside that verses 4 through 7. The second stanza is found in verses 4 through 7. And the psalmist says that God is the one who brings us deliverance. In verse 4, he says that he sought the Lord. In other words, he's telling us that we should seek the Lord as well. How should we seek the Lord? Look down in verse 7. He says we should seek the Lord with fear. What happens when we seek the Lord? What happens when we seek the Lord with fear? We're going to des- describe those in a minute. He's going to deliver us from our fears. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says that he delivers us from our fear. So let's think about what it means to seek the Lord. Let's think about what it means to, um, to uh, have fear in the Lord and what it means to be delivered. To seek means to inquire or consult or to ask. And it's all within the context of a covenantal relationship with the Lord. To seek the Lord doesn't mean I need something good from God, so I'm going to ask it from him. Rather, to seek the Lord means I want to be in relationship with him, an ongoing, personal, intimate relationship with him, where I share him with him what's going on in my life, and I make myself available for him to work in my life. That's what it means to seek the Lord. Guys, we've got to seek the Lord with all of our nephesh. We've got to worship him with all that we have. Seek the Lord. And then he says that we should have fear in verse 7, in the Lord. What does it mean to have fear in the Lord? That means to have reverence. That means to have respect for God. It means that we are humble, much like that verse that started about blessing the Lord by being on our knees and kneeling before him. And it says that when we seek the Lord like this, 
when we fear the Lord like this, then we experience what is said at the end of verse 4. At the end of verse 4, it says that he delivered me from all my fears. Please notice what he delivers us from and what he doesn't necessarily deliver us from. When we seek the Lord, when we fear him, then all the other fears will fade away. It doesn't necessarily mean the situations that had us fearful dissolve and go away. Do you follow what I'm saying? So I don't know what chaos you've had in your life this week. I know I was texting with a friend of mine this week about things, how some stuff related to government was going to maybe impact his business, and we were talking about all those details, and we identified that, hey, we don't know what's going to happen, but let's put our trust in God, and then all those fears are going to go away. But it might still be there at the end of the day as far as the situation that we're facing. So whenever we place our faith and our trust in Christ, then he delivers us from that fear, even if the thing is still going on around us. And so I wanted to have you ask yourself a question. Here's the question I'd love for you to ask. What am I fearful of? Be honest. You see, you're not the lone ranger who is the only one without fears. Be honest. What is your fear right now? It could even be something like this. I'm fearful that our country will stop worshiping the Lord, churches are going to close down, and we're going to be spiritually dead and apathetic in our nation. That sounds like a pretty healthy thing to be concerned about, but if you are fearful of that and you let that drive you, then you've taken your eyes off of the Lord who can bring deliverance through that. Does that make sense? So even if you think your fear or your anxiety or your concern is a righteous one, let's think for just a second, what are you fearful of? Whatever it is, you can face that whenever your confidence is put in him. Found something interesting this week as I was looking at the Hebrew. Let's look on further down. Verse 5. Before I read it and talk about it, let me share something with you real quick, in case you don't know this already. Hebrew poetry, which Psalms is poetry, typically uses what is known as parallelism. And perhaps you know what parallel means. Parallel means going side by side. I don't know if that's the exact definition, but, you know, going side by side. They're running neck and neck with each other. Typically, Hebrew parallelism means that in one verse, You will have two sentences or two phrases, and they're saying the same thing. They're just using different words. And so the first one maybe says it, and the second one really emphasizes it. Occasionally, you'll have opposite parallelism, where the first line says this, and the second one says the same thing, but says the negative. Like, for instance, it could say, God's going to do this with the righteous people, and then God's going to do this with the unrighteous people. So it's still parallel, it's just kind of different conclusions, if that makes sense. So verse 5 also has a parallelism, and it says, those who look to God are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. It's interesting, I looked up the word ashamed this week, and the word ashamed actually means blushing. In the Hebrew, ashamed means blushing. And so what he's saying is that whenever we don't trust God, then we will blush or be embarrassed or ashamed because we're defeated by the thing we're facing. However, whenever we do seek him, we see what happens in the beginning of verse 5. Our faces are radiant. So we go from the embarrassment of defeat to the glow and shining of victory. Whenever we seek the Lord. And so whenever we seek the Lord, we experience deliverance. I also love one more thing. I know I've got to keep going, but I love one more thing in this section. It says this in verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. In the Old Testament, whenever the phrase, the angel of the Lord is used, It can mean actually one of two things. It can mean literally a messenger from the Lord, literally an angel that we think of, or it can be a figurative 
use, and it can be a theophany. Theophany means an appearance of God himself in the flesh, almost like a pre-incarnate Christ. And so whenever, whenever you see the phrase angel of the Lord, it can mean literally an angel or it can mean the very presence of God himself. Either way, whether through a special messenger or through God himself, his presence is felt. And whenever you see the angel of the Lord, oftentimes you see it from the sense of a victory of a military conquest. And so in this picture, in verse 7, it says the angel of the Lord encamps around us. We see a victory uh, a campsite that God encircles us. He surrounds us. He is on every side of us. He is near us. He brings victory. He sets his tent around us and abides with us on every side. I'd encourage you to do this. If you're struggling with remembering that God is the one who delivers you, do like the psalmist does. The psalmist here says in verse 6, this poor man cried out and God answered. So whenever you find yourself wondering if God really is going to deliver you, remember times in your life where he's done it before, he'll do it again. Look to God's word where he's done it and in the life of his people and know that he'll do it again. He may not deliver you from the thing, but he'll always deliver you from your fears. Let's keep going. Third, third uh, stanza. In him we have everything. That's verses 8 through 10. In God, in the Lord, we have everything. Look down at verse 10. We were talking about cats a minute ago. Let's look at another cat. It says in verse 10, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. David uses an illustration he paints the picture of a lion. Have you seen a lion lately? We were at the zoo the other day, and I heard a lioness roar and growl, and she probably wasn't even mad. I do not want to be out in the jungle in front of a lion and hear him roar. I can't imagine the power behind the thing. But as you think about the power of a lion who is an apex predator, meaning no uh, animal uh, attacks him. He's not the prey of anyone. Did you know that as David says here, there are times that even a strong, powerful, amazing creature like a lion goes hungry or lacks things. Because it doesn't matter how strong you are in your own power, you're going to lack something at times. And what, what the psalm says here is that contrary to a, even a lion who's powerful, who sometimes lacks, it says those who seek the Lord lack no good things. Now, I want to be really careful here. This is not name it and claim it religion. This is not prosperity gospel. To have David say that whenever we seek the Lord, we lack no good thing doesn't mean, all right, that means my team's going to win the Super Bowl. I'm going to get that car I want. I'm going to get in this job I, I need. I'm going to be prosperous and have all this financial blessing. And God's word says it. I believe it. And by golly, it's going to happen. No, that's not quite what this is teaching. Rather... What it's saying is that God himself is every good thing. So even if you have nothing whatsoever in your life, if you have God and you're seeking him, you lack no good thing. Does that make sense? Like we lack nothing when we're seeking after the Lord. And when we're doing our own thing, we're going to lack everything that really matters. Maybe the season of life that you're in makes it tough for you to see or believe this truth. I put in the title of this, In Him We Have Everything. You may be going, I don't feel like I have everything. Like life is not going the way I want it to go. There are so many things. Let me list this that I don't have and that that I don't have and I'm missing this and I've lost that and I wish that and I don't know for sure about this and I'm uncertain what the future holds. We could go on and on and on again. And you may find it difficult to hear it or to see it or to believe it. I think that's why he includes what I love in verse 9, uh, sorry, verse 8. The psalmist says, David says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's calling us 
to experience the goodness of the Lord. He's calling us to remember the goodness of the Lord. He uses tangible things, taste and seeing. And I thought of this, as I, as I read this, I thought of something that I think is just a beautiful experience. It involves food, it involves sugar, and here it goes. At my mama's house, she would always make us, or make me anyway, the most amazing coconut cream pie that you could ever smell, see, or taste. There's just like nothing like going into the kitchen and smelling that pudding or custard or filling that's, that's warming on the stove and stirring and then it coming off and before it goes in the pie to be filled in for her to let me lick the, 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 the pan after it's over with and the warmness of the taste. It's the smell, like before I put it in my mouth, I've got to smell it. It's a full-on experience. Does anybody know what I'm talking about with some kind of food? And so whenever we taste and see that the Lord is good, he's calling us to experience him fully. Like, don't just do the head knowledge and go, yep, I know that about God. Don't just do the, oh yeah, that happened in the past. Or don't just use your words to sing. Or don't just say the Bible verse. But in, allow everything to just be consumed by God. Like, experience him when I say, don't, don't be afraid of that word experience. Like, God is more than just an experience or a feel-good moment. Like, it's grounded in the fact that Jesus died for our sins. He was raised on the third day. But it's much more than just the mental understanding of that. It's a, a, an experience of just being absorbed by all that God is. So we're to taste and see that he is good. So he gives us all good things. We have everything we need if we have him. Here's my question for you. When is the last time that you just stopped and feasted on the Lord? When's the last time you just stopped and tasted and saw how good God is? Yes, circumstances may stink right now, but the Lord, he is good i think that if we could allow ourselves to marinate in that truth and tasting and seeing and experiencing and knowing that the lord is good if we could just marinate and stew in that a bit we'd be much better off than we are god is good marinate on his goodness marinate on his word. I love what David said last week about how we're to devour God's word and study it and understand it and apply it and live it out. Let, let's focus on his promises. Let's focus on him. Let's taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's keep going. After we're reminded of who God is, we see how good he is, then we need to take this next step that's found in the fourth stanza, uh, verses 11 through 14, which is teach others to worship him we're to teach others to worship him it's found in the in the context of verses 11 through 14 i talked about a moment ago that we're to be a disciple make disciples and be the church well to be a disciple means that we have to instruct others right and so teaching others is just comes with the territory of being a true disciple to fully grow in our relationship with god we must include the practice of teaching or instructing or leading or guiding or discipling others along the way. Look what the psalmist does in verse 11. He takes on this role of a teacher. He says, come, come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. He's saying, guys, I, I want to teach you, like, I've experienced God for who he is, and I want you to follow him and worship him and serve him and love him and fear him, and so now would you come and gather around so I can kind of teach you how to do that? And then we see how he describes godly living. Now, granted, godly living cannot be fully described in two verses in the book of Psalms, but he begins to describe what it looks like to live a godly life. 
He begins by saying, basically in verse 12, depending on your translation, maybe a little bit easier to understand than the ESV, but in verse 12, he's basically saying, do you want to really enjoy life? Do you want to really see what life is all about? Life is not about what you have or the things you do or, or the person that you are or the status you have. Rather, life is found in God and in him alone. And if you want to know what life is, then live a godly life. And so in 13 and 14, he gives those instructions. Verse 13, he says that you're to avoid the presence of sin in your lives. He describes keeping your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Live, uh, uh, sorry, avoid the presence of sin in your life. Guard your mouth. Then in verse 14, he says instead of doing the evil things, do the good things. Turn away from it and do good. Seek peace. Pursue it. I love the fact that verse 14 is there because Christianity is not just a list of don'ts. It's also a list of do's like don't just don't don't just avoid evil but replace doing evil with doing good pursuing God living righteously the Christian life is not just a list of don'ts good is to be done good is not just to be known good is not to just be contemplated good is to be done what does it mean to seek peace and pursue it the word peace here is shalom peace is wholeness in God uh, a sense of wholeness whenever we seek God we experience peace even though the world around us may be chaotic and then whenever we seek God and point others to seek God as well then they're pursuing peace we need to encourage others to follow God as well so here's my question if we're to teach others to worship him are you currently in a discipling relationship? Oh, but Alan, I'm not, I'm not mature enough. Like, I can't disciple anybody yet. I, I'm not saying, are you discipling someone? I said, are you in a discipling relationship? Are you in a Bible study class? Are you in a D group? Are you in an accountability group? Are you in, in, a, in an informal conversation with someone else? Is there someone in your life where you're pouring into his or her life and they into yours and you're mutually discipling each other even if he or she is a little further along than you? You are both investing in each other's lives we must be in a discipling relationship because we want to be disciples who make disciples let's keep going the next the last stanzas the fifth stanzas found in verses 15 through 18 and, and the phrase i want you to see here is that god attentively cares for us Verses 15 through 18 is such a tender portion of the text in fact it's what draws me to this chapter to begin with and we see in verses 15 through 18 that God is a personal God when I say personal God I'm not saying your personal genie where he's at your beck and call and he does what you want him to do and when he does when he wants you, when you want him to and when you snap your fingers rather a personal God means he is personal he is in relationship with you he's not impersonal he's not at a distance he is involved intimately in your in your life he 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 relates to us in a personal way. And the psalmist uses a few things to help us see how he relates to us personally. He uses some uh, words that typically describes humans. Look in verses 15 through 18. He says, the eyes of the Lord are toward us. His ears are toward us. The face of the Lord is against those who, who do evil. So he uses human character traits or, or body parts, eyes, ears, face. And the, the, the word uh, that we can use for this is anthropomorphic anthropomorphism which means basically using human character traits to describe in a more clear way or to help us understand in a figurative way who God really is and to see that he really cares about us for us to read that God sees us that God hears us is a good thing it shows that he, in, uh, he uh, attentively cares for us. As I've been reading the scripture this week, I've been reading in, in the book of Matthew, and several times it talks about how God looked at a crowd, and he, uh, Jesus looked at a crowd, and he had compassion upon them. So we're reminded of this as well in Psalm 34, that he looks at us, he's attentive to us. And then look at verse 18 with me. Verse 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Sometimes when we read this verse, we go, oh, yeah, that's exactly where we're at. These last two years have been crazy. I'm just broken. I'm hurting. I can't go on. And this says that he's near me. Correct, he is near you, but that's not what this verse is teaching. Let me explain what I think we need to clearly see that this verse is teaching. Look at verse 18 closer. I said a moment ago that 
uh, poetry in Hebrew is parallel. And we see the second phrase says that he saves the crushed in spirit. So the word brokenhearted must be understood when we read crushed in spirit. The word crushed in spirit means contrite. And perhaps you use that word and perhaps you don't, but contrite means a sincere remorse for sin. And so what the psalmist is saying is that, that God saves those who are remorseful for their sin. So whenever it says that, that he is near to the brokenhearted, it's not talking about those who are brokenhearted emotionally, although he is near us that way. But the direct teaching of this text says that he's near the brokenhearted. It means that whenever we look at our own lives, we are broken over our sin and that we know that we need God. So whenever it says that he is near us, when we are crushed in spirit or brokenhearted, means that when we acknowledge that we are bankrupt spiritually, then he is near us and we experience his presence. I don't have it on the screen, but perhaps you're familiar with what Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 says. Jesus in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's the same concept that we find in Psalm 34. The person that God is near is the one who acknowledges that he is sovereign and above us, and yet he relates to us personally, and we are willing to confess our sins to him. You see, knowing that we're hopeless will cause us to turn our eyes to him. That brings me to the last stanza. The last, I believe, four or five verses here, verses 19 through 22, we see that he is our hope. He's our hope. Are you facing a tough time? Christ is your hope. Look at verse 19. I told you that the psalmist is always real. Here's what he says. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. That doesn't bring me much hope. It says the righteous are still going to face afflictions. But the reality is it's true. Just as it was true over 3,000 years ago, it is true today that we will face hardships and afflictions and problems. And as a result of that, it can cause us to feel hopeless. But it says at the end of verse 19 that he brings deliverance. And then keep reading or keep looking at the text. We see in verses 21 and 22 that it promises that a time of judgment is coming, but that there's hope in the Lord. Verse 21 says that affliction is going to slay the wicked, that the, those who hate righteousness will be condemned. And then it inversely tells us in verse 22 that those who trust him, that the Lord will redeem their life. Those that are not in Christ will be condemned to an eternity apart from the Lord. But verse 22 brings us the hope that's found in the Messiah, the Christ, that those who trust in him will be redeemed. says in verse 22 that the Lord redeems the life of his servants. The Greek, sorry, the Hebrew word for redeem is the word ransom. It's saying that God will ransom our lives when we pursue and trust in him. Whenever we see that, it reminds me of what Christ did on the cross for us. See, we can talk about being delivered from our fears. We can be talking about, I want to be delivered from my circumstances. But there's a deliverance that must happen in a person's life that, that, that comes first. And that is a, a deliverance from sin and, and a sense of bringing redemption and reconciliation in our lives to God. And it says that we're redeemed by a ransom. The Bible tells us that all of us are sinners and that because of our sin, that the wages of our sin is death. And what we deserve for all eternity is a separation from a holy, perfect, good God. But the good news is that God sent the answer, and that answer is Jesus Christ. That he came to pay our ransom. He came to pay our deliverance fee. He came to die the death that you and I deserve. He, he came to pay the price for our sins to be forgiven. And that because of what he does for us, that he willingly dies in our place and then is raised three days later, that if we place our faith and our trust in him and repent of our sins, then we can have our lives redeemed as well. So my question for you this morning is, have you experienced 
the redemption of your life through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, have you experienced the ultimate deliverance? Because if you haven't, the bad news is in verse 21 that you are condemned. And if you have experienced this, are you living in the hope of Jesus Christ? And are you sharing that hope with others that are around you? See, the only chaos to the life that we have, sorry, the only answer, sorry, the only answer to the chaos of life is Jesus Christ. You see, he was the answer. Today is January 16th, right? He was the answer on January 16th, 2019, four weeks before the world went crazy. And he's the same answer today, two years later. He's the same to yesterday, today, and forever. So cry out to him with confidence that he hears you. Also remember that we need each other. This psalm is not only David worshiping the Lord, he's inviting others to come and worship with him as well. The way that we're going to continue to experience God's goodness and his deliverance is by trusting in him individually, yes, but also experiencing it corporately. That's why we need each other. That's why when we're healthy and able to be in the building, it's best to be here and together so we can be together corporately. That's why we need to be in hope groups together. That's why we need to be in Bible studies together. That's why we need to be served together. That's why we need to invite each other to each other's houses. That's why after the service is over with, we need to introduce ourselves to some people because God made us to be relational people and he wants his church to be in this together so we can remind each other and preach the gospel to each other that God is enough and that he will deliver us so my challenge for us as we begin this year together is that we would seek to truly be a disciple who makes disciples who can be the church all to the glory of God and trust him along the way I'm going to pray for us in just a moment after the prayer is over with would you be willing to literally lay it all on the table and say, God, this is my nephesh. This is all of who I am. And I don't know exactly what to do, but I want to say you alone are worthy of my worship and I trust you will deliver me. God, have your way in my life. God, have your way in my family's life. God, have your way in my church life. And would you do that? Would you sing that? Would you pray that? Would you kneel at your chair? Would you kneel here at the altar? Would you come and share with me? Would you send that text? Would you respond as God leads you to respond? If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, would you trust in him today? Because he alone brings deliverance from our sin. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you now. We come to you now saying that we choose to bless the Lord at all times. God, that we choose to have our praise continually be in our mouths. God, we choose to trust you. Father, I pray that this morning you'd allow us to repent of sin that we may have. Father, we'd be able to confess of the struggles that we have, that we can trust that you have the answer to it all. God, have your way, not only in this moment, but more importantly, that because of what you do in this moment, that you would have your way in our lives as we walk out this door, as we go through the rest of this week as we go through the rest of this year, as we see people that don't know you, as we share the gospel hope that's found in Jesus Christ. May your will be done in our lives. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Would you stand with us?